0: I don't think any American really looks forward to paying taxes. Engraved on the exterior of the Internal Revenue Service building in Washington, D.C. is the phrase attributed to the great Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Taxes are what we pay for a civilized society. Now, in some other countries, many of its citizens actually believe this and generally see that it's true that their taxes actually do build real, effective national security and strength. But here in the United States, everyone gripes about taxes. In some other countries, it's widely accepted that money is spent prudently and is carefully monitored so as to avoid waste and serve the public good. For decades, taxpayers here have bristled at the projected and rather racist image of a welfare queen taking more than she deserved. But when it comes to military spending, it seems everyone automatically gives them a pass. Anything they want. After all, especially after 9-11, we want to be safe from foreign attacks. And again, it is widely understood that at its base, government is there to provide for the common defense. But here we are well into the 21st century, and it has proven way too many times that no matter how overpowering America's military muscle may be, it does not necessarily increase our actual security. Paying for military capability for old-style wars perhaps doesn't add up anymore. So how much do we spend under the broad category of military readiness? And how does the specter of welfare abuse compare with wasted, often unaccountable military expenditures? Our guest today knows a bit about this topic. William Hartung has written a new article at Tom Dispatch called Boondoggle, Inc., making sense of a $1.25 trillion national security state budget. Bill Hartung, thanks again for being with us.
1: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: Bill Hartung is director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy and the author of Profits of War – Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex. Uh, $1.25 trillion. How can anyone understand what that means? I mean, a billion is hard enough to figure because that's a thousand million. A thousand million. And a trillion is a thousand billion. It's just far beyond comprehension. So maybe it's easiest to not even try. A couple of questions come up before we start looking at where the dollars go. You call it a national security state budget. You didn't call it a defense budget. Please explain that.
1: Well, you know, a lot of it doesn't defend us, so that's part of it. A lot of it is waste. A lot of it is unnecessary weapons that would have been useful 30 years ago. Um, A lot of it is related to a strategy that makes no sense, sort of global interventionism. That led to things like Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's part of the reason. And then the other reason is, you know, when people talk about the defense budget, they usually mean the Pentagon. And we looked at all the other elements of, uh, you know, security-related spending. So, uh, so those were the two reasons we chose that.
0: And you co-wrote this article uh, with someone else. I can't recall that other name.
1: Oh yes, Mandy Smithberger of the Project on Government Oversight. Who's a very good analyst.
0: Oh, good. Well, so the Trump administration requested seven hundred billion dollars for the budget year twenty twenty. How does that measure up to times of war, when one would think defense spending would be at its absolute peak?
1: Well, Trump actually started at seven hundred, and then the lobbyists from the Hill and the Pentagon boosted them to seven fifty, um, So that is larger than what we spent at the peak of Korea or Vietnam or the Reagan buildup. The only time it was higher was in 2010 when we had 180,000 troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. We now have about 20,000, 25,000 and the budget's only come down very slightly. So uh, the Pentagon's sitting on a huge amount of money and ironically, they've been saying it's not enough. You know, that the force is going to be decimated and we're going to fall behind Russia and China but of course it's their job to cry wolf i mean that's mm. that's how they get their budget uh but unfortunately a lot of people are buying that argument
0: sitting on a lot of money that's that's an interesting uh situation where they already have money that they're sitting on it's like so many banks these days have a tremendous amount of liquid cash and they're just not doing anything with it and that creates its own if uh, difficulties. Of course, Trump is not the only one who kowtows to the military contractors. I mean, let's face it, Democrats who have a majority in the House in 2019, uh, we've been in power before. And how likely is it that the Democrats in the House will go along with this $750 billion technical defense budget?
1: Well, there seem to be two threads. The leadership was willing to settle on something like 733 billion versus Trump's 750, so that's a very marginal change. Um, some progressive members can go along with that uh, idea, and so it's still under debate. Uh, but part of the problem is uh, there may be a trade-off where there's allegedly supposed to be caps on the Pentagon and domestic budget under law, and sometimes the trade-off the Democrats make is all right rescind some of the cuts that Trump's talking about on the domestic side, we'll give you more for the Pentagon. So th- there's this unfortunate connection that actually leads to more spending on both sides. And it's sort of understandable. I mean, if, if you're trying to make sure they don't cut the state department by 30%, and they don't cut you know, programs that are helping people keep body and soul together. Some members think that's a bargain they're forced to make, um, but it, it leads to a lot of waste on the Pentagon side. And it forecloses options for the future because the Pentagon gets about um, 57 cents on the dollar of our discretionary budget, which is pretty much everything the government does other than transfer payments like uh, Medicare and Social Security. So uh, it's it's an unfortunate bargain that's been made the last few years. And I'm hoping in the context context of the presidential campaign, there'll be some more ambitious ideas about how to rein in the Pentagon.
0: Well, I wonder, and I was certainly going to bring that up. About you know, we're we're getting cooking here in the twenty twenty presidential campaign. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard has talked about military spending, and uh, Bernie Sanders somewhat as well. What, what what's your sense? Are they do they these twenty five or so candidates do they get a sense from the public? I mean, their their goal is to win that the public cares about this. What's your sense of this, Bill? Are they they starting to talk about this? Do they dare to look soft on defense? Well, I think
1: there's the beginnings of an argument. Uh, Elizabeth Warren put out a good anti-corruption platform to deal with uh, the Pentagon, having to do with former Pentagon officials going to work as lobbyists for industry. Uh, But she also said, We have a bloated defense budget. It's time to make some cuts. Uh, A lot of this money is not helping our troops and so forth. Um, And so I I think there's an opening. And then there's organizations like the Poor People's Campaign and some of the large um, progressive groups that are starting to talk about this as a kind of a plank, just like you have Medicare for all and you have the Green New Deal. In order to finance those ambitious programs, you can't just... Give the Pentagon whatever it wants, and so so I think there is an opening, but it's, it's just at the beginning stages. And I only know, uh, you know, you mentioned Tulsi Gabbard and Sanders and Warren. I haven't heard much from the other candidates about cutting the Pentagon, and also the members who have spoken about it haven't said a number. You know, can we cut fifty billion, a hundred billion? They've just said it's excessive, and a lot of it's going to you know corporate insiders, and this is a problem for us, but. But they haven't gone that next step of saying, well, you know, if the Pentagon wants to spend, you know, 7.6 trillion over the next 10 years, how much of that is unnecessary? What can we do with that for other purposes? So, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that there will be a real discussion, but it's it's, you know, we're not there yet.
0: No, we're not. And what I tend to see just in my limited uh, viewpoint is uh, a lot of times Democrats uh, cut the increase you know, the projected increase, and, and, they, and they call that a cut instead and, you know, kind of have their tail between the legs. I mean, we got to look at the, the cultural context of this. I think it's fascinating how it seems every year, you know, Reagan on up, Trump and the Republicans insist the U.S. military is, in Trump's words, woefully underfunded. What, what about the cultural context for the success of this line? Your thoughts on that, Bill?
1: Well, it's interesting because in recent years, well, in this, in this last decade, when they've been complaining about not having a much, enough money, they actually got a trillion dollars more than the prior decade. And the prior decade was the peak of the Iraq War and peak of the Afghanistan War and so forth. So um, by any normal standard, they've done tremendously well for themselves. What they do is, they, they, as you were saying, they compare it to what they'd like to have. You know, it's like they wanted much more, and they didn't get it all, and they consider that a cut. You know, it's sort of like if, you know, if I'm making fifty thousand a year, I'd rather make a hundred. My boss says, "Okay, you can have seventy five. I didn't get my hundred, so the Pentagon would say, "Oh, you got a twenty-five thousand dollar cut in your salary," right? Even though in the real world, I've gotten a huge increase, and that's so they they play with the math, and then there's a lot of fear mongering. You know, so for example, there's a new a commission that the congress mandated called the national defense strategy commission supposed to review the pentagon's strategy and basically they had this alarmist rhetoric about how we could lose the war with russia or china and we need to spend three to five percent more adjusted for inflation than the pentagon's already huge plans for spending and which would put our pentagon budget just by itself over a trillion dollars a year not mentioning all these other categories that we talked about in my article so um you know, I think it's a combination of fear, uh, some kind of, you know, twisting the math, and then also, of course, underlying it is the military lobby. So not only are they hiring all these high-powered former government officials to lobby for them and spending tens of millions on lobbying and campaign contributions, but they also have uh, plants and military bases in a lot of states and districts. So you'll have liberals who might on yes. the paper, be opposed to increases in Pentagon spending, but they don't want to cut anything that would impact their district, jobs in their district, or state. So that tends to lock in, put sort of a floor under Pentagon spending, uh, even in times when it should be coming down, like at the end of the Cold War,
0: right.
1: or frankly now, when you know when you go from 180,000 troops overseas to 20 something, you would think the budget would reflect that, but in fact they've just replaced the threat of terrorism with Oh, now we've got to worry about Russia and China. So there's always a a, a kind of a threat to be pointed to as to why we need more. And I think a lot of people just have this general sense of, well, I guess, you know, to be safe, I guess more is better. You know, they don't really think about the waste or the the failed strategy or the other elements of it that actually sometimes spending more makes us less safe.
0: Yeah, it certainly, yeah, I would think it does. And uh, if you just tuned in, Burt Cohen here, this is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about the national security state budget, how much of our tax dollars are being spent and where they're going. And our guest is William Hartung, who's written an article on Tom Dispatch called Boondoggle Inc., making sense of a One Point." $25 trillion national security state budget. And I remember about 15 years ago, maybe more, uh, a, a guy came to town and he was a military spending expert. And he said back then that about $65 billion per year was spent maintaining obsolete West weapons systems. And he thought, you know, we could cut that out entirely. Has that been addressed by frugal congressional oversight. Are we still spending money on, on weapon systems that are just obsolete? Is that a part of it?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, certainly not aligned with the, the challenges that are most likely. I mean, even if you look at things like why are we buying more aircraft carriers? You know, they claim it's for things like to put pressure on China so they don't control the South China Sea and things like that. But, you know, modern uh, missile systems could take out an aircraft carrier. And so you're spending huge amounts of money. You know, the, the aircraft carrying-related ships, that whole package can cost about $17 billion. Uh, the missiles you would need to destroy it or disable it cost a tiny, tiny fraction of that. So, But the Navy likes aircraft carriers. Uh, they like the sense of global reach that they can send them around the world to sort of send quote, signals to people and so forth, as they did uh, relative to Iran recently, um, you know, that the Air Force is putting a lot of money into the F-35, It's going to be the most expensive weapons program in the history of the Pentagon. Right. And even though it's not clear that manned aircraft are the wave of the future, uh, given drones, also, what are these aircraft for? I mean, most of the wars in the United States fights are against um Advertised that don't have an air force. Right. You know, the Taliban, ISIS, and so forth. So, current generation aircraft are more than adequate if you believe that you can bomb your way out of the terrorism problem, which I I don't. (laughs) Um, So, there's a lot of things like that. And things get locked into place because of the arms lobby and because their money's flowing and because there's jobs connected. So, even just if you were sort of an intelligent military strategist who believed in the use of force, you wouldn't pick kind of arsenal we have now, which has been locked in mostly by politics, not by kind uh, of thinking what's the best for defending the country.
0: Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they like their toys. Boys like their toys. Let's face it. And, uh, you know, they, these big things, they're, gosh, so much fun. I suppose they're like big motorcycles or something. I don't know. That's just my point of view. Um, and, we're, again, we're talking about national security state spending. You say that 750 billion dollars represents only part of the actual annual cost uh what is the pentagon's base budget what does what does that phrase mean and how does that compare to the whole uh Megilla?
1: well the pentagon's base budget is essentially their regular budget that doesn't count what they spend on wars you know so it's it's paying the troops, it's buying the weapons, it's maintaining the military bases, it's paying for the benefits and health care of the troops and so forth. Uh, it's all the spare parts and maintenance and so forth. To, to keep a military that's 1.4 million troops and 700,000 uh, reserve forces and, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of bureaucrats at the Pentagon and private contractors. and So so that's that maintains sort of the essential core of the military force, but then if they're if they're going to fight a war, they, they charge extra. And sometimes they charge more than actually even costs to fight the war. It's just, as a way to, uh, you know, further further their nest. And so that, uh, you know, 500, um, you know, roughly 550 billion is, is about half of the, the full spending on national security. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, are not aware of that.
0: Yeah. A lot of stuff I guess is, is off budget somehow. It's, it it, they they play with numbers my dad used to say figures don't lie but liars figure
1: yeah exactly and and uh, i mean you can find this stuff but it takes time and effort it's not presented in a clear way to the congress or anybody else
0: right right it's it's uh, buried in there on purpose and you use the description outright waste is that relatively definable as as you say it's an expansive category that includes everything from cost overruns to unnecessary bureaucracy please describe what you mean there what, what is it definable outright waste that maybe you know presidential candidates could could point to these things rather specifically
1: yeah I think there's things that just serve no useful purpose in terms of defending us uh, and the spending just goes on you know in the um, 80s there was a whole scandal over overpriced spare parts um, you know, the $600 toilet seat and the $7,000 coffee maker and the $500 hammer and so forth. And Congress has done very little to, to resolve that problem. Um, the department's inspector general just uh, put out a bunch of information about a company called TransDyme, which replied they give all kinds of spare parts for aircraft. Um, in one case, there was a part, there was took them $173 to produce, and they charged almost $7,000 to the Pentagon. Uh, there was another part, $557 to produce, $10,000 charged to the Pentagon. And there were a whole series of these things over many years. Nobody in the Pentagon questioned it. Right. Basically, the company's business model was to buy up these spare parts companies, so they were the only supplier, then charge whatever the Pentagon would allow, which was these huge numbers. Um, so you have things like that, which, you know, that's not making anybody safer. That's just uh, excessive profits for this company. Um, you have things like private contractors. Uh, the Pentagon employs, we think, 600,000 or so private contractors. Wow. Actually, human Secretary of Defense Robert Gates a few years ago said, well, we, we don't actually know the exact number. We can't keep track of them all. But a lot of them do jobs that are being done simultaneously by civilian government employees so there's this redundancy factor they cost more um and if you cut you know if you only had you know half a million of them instead of 600,000 you would save about 20 billion dollars a year Hmm. uh, which is for any other agency is a huge amount of money For the pentagon it's relatively small part of their (laughs) budget um then you have things like the f-35 where Uh over the life of it it's supposed to cost 1.4 trillion dollars 400 billion for buying it and the rest for operating it. And it's got all kinds of problems. In fact, uh, my colleague, Mandy Smithberger, and her colleagues at President of Government Oversight have basically said it may never be ready, fully ready for combat uh, because it doesn't communicate well with forces on the ground. It's not really good against other fighter planes. It's got um, all kinds of parts that aren't functioning. The ones that they've actually already purchased, they're having to retrofit fix things that didn't uh, get fixed in the original design and production and there's just a whole series of problems like that which indicate that these things will not be not only won't they be that capable but they may be sitting in the hangar for significant amounts of time because they're not very easy to uh, maintain so if you purchase upgraded versions of the planes that already work that we have you could save huge amounts of money and you'd probably have a better product but because, you know, new aircraft are more profitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lockheed Martin is making big money on it. Uh, they're building them in Texas and Georgia and California where you've got influential members. They've also got a lot of allies buying them, so they sort of say, well, we can't let down our allies. Um, you know, so there's there's all this kind of pork barrel politics baked into it that lead us to buy a system that, that basically doesn't serve our needs. So I think, you know, it depends how how narrowly you define waste, but certainly things like the cost overruns and also the accounting failures. The Pentagon's never passed an audit, Mm. Uh, and so they can't really tell you exactly how they're spending our money. Uh, And there's been some push on that from a range of members of Congress. There was one bill that, on the right, Ted Cruz was a sponsor. On the left, Bernie Sanders, a bunch of folks in between. So Congress is aware of this, but they haven't quite figured out how to discipline the pentagon there is some money being thrown at it to try to do the audit and, and the guy in charge of it is david norquist who's the brother of Grover oh. norquist the, the you know yeah. uh big tax cutter right. and so there, there is also some energy from the right you know saying that this is ridiculous they have to at least be able to tell us how they're spending the money so um you know so there's, there's all those elements uh that we would want to deal with and i, I think it's it really cuts into this notion that we need to spend more when you look at how much of what we're spending has no relationship to actual defense
0: yeah it seems sort of like up on a pedestal is spend more just spend more <laughs> and that you know the when in
1: doubt spend more
0: yeah uh, the, the the contractors are feeding off the public trough you know and and you know we mentioned early on you know there's that old image from Reagan era about the, the welfare queen, you know, maybe stealing an extra five bucks a week or something like that. People complain about that. I guess they can sort of visualize it, but they can't visualize these, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that are just being, you know, siphoned off into uh, the CEOs of, of weapons companies. I, it, it's amazing. And here we have, you know, I, I, At first, I thought, well, maybe he's kidding, but then it was Donald Trump, so you know he's not kidding. His attitude toward defense spending seems like it's it's generated by a kid's comic book. He talks about a space force. A space force. How much money are we talking about, and does this loony idea have legs? Space force?
1: Well, yeah, space force, you know, one version of what happened was he started saying it at his rallies and people liked it. It was like the extraterrestrial version of the wall, you know. And so people were chanting Space Force when at his rallies and he really liked the idea. He was kind of shoving it down the throat of the Air Force, which wasn't so interested. They thought it would create unnecessary bureaucracy and so forth. But Patrick Shanahan, the Secretary of Defense, was a former Boeing executive, was a big advocate of it. And of course, Boeing has a lot of military space work that they do, so they would benefit uh, from the Space Force. Uh, But there is a lot of skepticism in Congress on both sides of the aisle. Um, You know, there's some hawks who say, well, this is just another bureaucracy. How is that really going to help us? Um, Adam Smith, who chairs the uh, Custom Services Committee, has been a big opponent of it. And the cost is pretty open-ended. I mean, you know, the startup costs for the next couple of years just to get the bureaucracy in place have estimates have ranged from two billion to thirteen billion. But that's just the down payment. What really happens is if it's literally a new force, you know, another armed force that's independent, then it's got its own, you know, kind of lobbying interests and its own procurement budget and its own R and D budget. And they're gonna be lobbying Congress to give us more than the other services and it'll push the overall Pentagon budget up by Certainly, tens of billions of dollars, if not more, if if they get this thing started, and it's part of this general enthusiasm for space that had been tamped down a bit after uh, people realized that Reagan's Star Wars right. uh, was nuts. Idea was a fantasy. Yeah. It was costing a lot of money, not producing anything that would actually work. But some of those ideas are coming back, you know, yeah. lasers in space and things like that, which had been proven ineffectual. Uh, you know, many years ago, and there's no new science to show that that's going to change. But I think the space force concept is, is an umbrella for a general notion of further militarizing space, uh, putting uh, missile interceptors up there, and possibly even weapons that could take out other countries' satellites, which would be a disaster. Because the you know, if there were a arms race in space, the country that's most vulnerable is the United States. We depend on it not just to for communications for our military, Mm -hmm. but for a lot of everyday things, you know, cell phones, banking system. Uh, A lot of our civilian economy is based on the ability to have secure satellites in space. So this whole Space Force concept, while it might work well at a Trump rally, is, is one of the more awful policy ideas of recent memory.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's surprising to hear, you know, after all these years, just some kind of comic book thing. It, meanwhile, you know, th- this is, as, as you mentioned, you know, uh, our way of life these days depends on, on uh, space equipment, satellites, things like that for banking and all that stuff. And, you know, this is an age of cyber attacks, which seem to be a very effective and cost efficient way for enemies to do real damage to america uh but there's you know we focus on aircraft carriers destroyers i i I wonder about you know i suppose it's less fun at a rally to say we got to protect against cyber attacks but what is there part of this huge budget that is going into you know preparing and, and protecting america from cyber attacks
1: there is a fair amount of money being spent on it um Part of the problem is finding skilled workforce who can actually be helpful. Um, Part of it is they're spending a lot of money on offensive cyber attack capability as opposed to how to protect ourselves. And that could lead to a cyber arms race, which would be in nobody's interest. Um, You know, at some point, you have to think of them the way you would think of nuclear weapons, that there's got to be some rules of the road to control this stuff. But that's not where we are now. and if you were really going to do it well, you would have to set down some hard rules for the private sector because they control a lot of the things that are most vulnerable. And the government wouldn't be able to do it all just in terms of technical expertise, resources, and so forth. But nobody's really leaning on the banking industry and the people who run the electric grid and so forth to say you really got to put some resources into uh, protecting your, these assets against cyber attack. It's 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 pretty well the, the Wild West. I mean, companies have an interest in doing it, but they're not doing nearly enough. So, you know, if you were going to set some national priorities, um, you know, protection against cyber attacks would be much more important than, you know, building more nuclear weapons, for example, which we have in huge excess. Uh, but that's not the way things are going. And in terms of attention, you know, not, not just right. money, but, you know, what where is the where are the the mind's being right. Public focused in terms of what we need to do to protect ourselves. It's certainly not getting the kind of attention that it, it deserves.
0: So build weapons that don't do anything, that uh, a lot of them will just gather dust on a shelf somewhere and uh, be open to uh, cyber attack. Great strategy. For those of you who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Bill Hartung, uh, who is director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy and the author of Profits of War, P R O P H E T s of war, Lockheed Martin, and the making of the military industrial complex we 're talking about the uh, military budget, the national security state budget. He's written an article about that, and you mention nuclear war uh, i I just actually, within the past couple of months, watched Doctor. Strangelove yet again from nineteen sixty four uh, in which the u s and Russia accidentally go to nuclear war. What's the deal with nuclear weapons? Aren't such things, as you say, beside the point in any future conflicts? I mean, terrorists, you know, they do a lot of damage and without any kind of nuclear weapons. What's the role? I mean, are we still modernizing nuclear weapons? And what's what's the deal with that stuff?
1: Yeah, well, nuclear weapons um, have no real purpose in the actual conflicts the United States engages in. And if they were ever used, they would most likely end life as we know it. It'd certainly, be the most devastating, um, you know, military event in history. Um, so the goal should be to reduce them, not to increase them. But the Pentagon's had a plan for a while to kind of retool the entire nuclear arsenal. So new ballistic missile submarines, new land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles, new bombers, new nuclear warheads. Uh, a new low-yield nuclear warhead, which they claim will be a more credible deterrent, but also might be more likely to be used. Um, More cruise missiles that could fire from under a a wing of a bomber or from a submarine. So not only more of everything, but more expensive, more capable, more types of weapons. uh, And all for what? I mean, there was a uh, study by... um, a professor at the Air War College and one of his colleagues that suggested that to keep another country from attacking the United States with a nuclear weapon, you would need about 300 or so. And we have 4,000. Um, so we've already got huge overkill. And things like an ICBM, you know, land-based missile, mm-hmm. it's kind of that strange love scenario where there's a concern that if you don't launch them quickly and, and under fear of attack, the other side will take them out. And so by some estimates, the president would have somewhere between 10 to 12 minutes and maybe half an hour to decide if they think this blip on the radar screen is a nuclear attack or not and whether we should you know, enter the nuclear codes and attack Russia or China, for example. So uh, William Perry, who used to be Secretary of Defense under Clinton, and helped develop a lot of the modern arsenal, has said the ICBM is the most dangerous weapon we have because it increases the risk of an accidental nuclear war. So the war planners haven't learned a lot since the time of Dr. Strangelove, um, unfortunately. Uh, but there are voices being raised, groups like Global Zero, uh, the Arms Control Association, uh, some more uh, the more reasonable members of Congress, Uh, that this big nuclear buildup makes no sense. Uh, But you're dealing with the huge industrial machinery of the nuclear weapons industrial complex and the senators who want to keep the ICBM bases in their states and so forth. So it's a tough fight.
0: Yeah, cut everybody else's base, but not mine. So they got them spread out all over the country. So aside from the -the on-the-books defense spending, Many other items you specify in in your column. You describe something i would certainly never heard of, overseas contingency operations account, which you describe as a slush fund for the Pentagon. Uh, What is this, please? Well, uh,
1: back in 2011, when uh, the government was shut down uh, over, you know, the issue of whether to raise the debt ceiling, let the government borrow more. Um, you know, a deal was cut, uh, the Budget Control Act, which said, all right, we need to, you know, cut projected spending by $2 trillion over the next 10 years. Let's take a trillion by capping the Pentagon and a trillion by capping domestic programs. And so the Pentagon, in theory, was going to have to live under some fiscal discipline. Uh, but what happened was there was a huge loophole because the war budget, which is uh, separate you know, uh, and was used for financing the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and other related activities. They call that the Overseas Contingency Operations Account because they're the Pentagon. And why call it something that you would understand? Uh, But what they're doing is they're putting a lot of money into that budget that they would normally put in the regular budget, but the regular budget is capped. So Uh, in the most recent year, uh, in the proposal for 2020, They're talking about one hundred and seventy four billion dollars, either for that account or for related emergency spending. That one hundred seventy four billion is about what they spent at the peak of Iraq and Afghanistan. so you had you know you have about one ninth as many troops and you're spending more money in the war budget or in the same amount roughly as you were then. They've admitted that of that one hundred seventy four only about twenty five billion is spent on actually the, on the wars in Iraq and Syria. Afghanistan, etc. So they're more or less admitting, oh yeah, we're using this to get around the intent of the law. And and so that's why a lot of people call it a slush fund, including when he was in Congress, Mick Mulvane, who is now Trump's chief of staff. Of course, he was involved in creating this new budget that uses this slush fund to an absurd degree. But when he was in Congress, he was a critic of it uh, because he was a uh, you know, a fiscal conservative, sort of a Tea Party type.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, fiscal conservatives, deficit hawks, where are they? <laughs> Just when it comes to the... Well, they
1: got their tax cut and they seem to have quieted down quite a bit.
0: <laughs> True. Tax cut for the very wealthiest and to heck with everything else. Uh, and this, this slush fund, as you say, this year's budget actually supersizes the slush in that fund. Uh, it's... It's remarkable and, and slippery that it is. You know, they, they can craft laws, but there's always ways to get around it. Now, back in 2011, there was a very public effort to reduce the federal deficit, and that was the Simpson-Bowles Act. It was supposed to put caps on military and domestic spending and save $2 trillion over 10 years. You talked about uh, there's one way to to slither around that. How does reality compare with that promise of the Simpson-Bowles Act.
1: Well, between that, using the, the slush fund approach, and Congress made various deals where they lifted the caps to higher levels than they had been originally imposed at. So all that together means, I think I mentioned we've spent a trillion more, I'm sorry, yeah, a trillion more in this decade than we spent in the prior decade. So, at the same time that they're crying poverty and saying, oh, these terrible caps, and how can we possibly live under this? They've actually done a lot better uh, than they did previously, and, and they are at near record levels. So, it's really kind of the military industrial lobby on autopilot, you know, always crying for more, almost independently of what's happening in the world. And you've had uh, military leaders and others saying, this is the most dangerous moment in my lifetime. And I'm thinking, and some of them were around for World War II, for the Cuban Missile Crisis, for the various other uh, confrontations of the Cold War period. And it, so it's like, really, is this really the most dangerous time in history? Or Are you just telling us this as a justification for more money? Which is, you know, what I think they're doing.
0: Uh-huh. That makes that makes sense. It's all about uh, the money. And we talked a little bit about nuclear weapons, and I'm sure most Americans assume that nuclear weapons and the delivery systems are part of the defense budget. I mean, we're talking about defense. It's actually, as you point out, the Department of Energy. It's sort of an Orwellian use of language. You found what you call a, quote, long history of program mismanagement, with some projects coming in at nearly eight times the initial estimates. This is at the Department of Energy, which is separate, again, from the Pentagon. How is it that no one seems to notice this stuff?
1: Well, it's interesting, yeah, because their main function is developing nuclear warheads. And they've got facilities, uh, Lawrence Livermore Labs in California, uh, Los Alamos Labs in New Mexico, India Labs, which does the engineering. There's a plant in Kansas City that makes the non-nuclear parts. There's a plant in Texas that assembles the things and disassembles the ones that are reduced because of arms control agreements. There's a in Tennessee, they make the uranium uh, that goes into the bomb. There's a plant in South Carolina which may be closed, which made some of the special kind of booster elements that, that go into the weapon. Uh so, so you've got this huge complex. And what happened was uh, after the Manhattan Project, they put uh, eventually, put all of the nuclear stuff under uh, the Atomic Energy Commission, and of course, they were trying to sell nuclear technology by saying, "Well, you know, not only does it protect us, but we can use nuclear technology to create, uh, you know, electricity too cheap to meter." And there we see know. how that went. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, so because that sort of nuclear duality of the power and weapons led it to be put in in the Atomic Energy Commission, which then was absorbed under the Carter administration into this mega Department of Energy that included Energy Research and Development Agency and the Atomic Energy Commission and so forth. But it's been hidden there for years, and most people aren't aware of it. You know, there was some, you know, they would be comical if they weren't so serious moments of the 2016 campaign where, for example, Rick Perry said he was going to eliminate three departments. Couldn't remember what the third one was, and somebody had to tell him, one of the other candidates, that he had said he would close the Department of Energy, which he was then appointed to run. Right. And when he was appointed, he had no idea that he was presiding over the nuclear warhead complex. He didn't know that was part of his department. So, um, you know, so it's it's this, and it's insidious, not only because it's kind of hidden from view, but there's plenty of things we should be doing in the energy field uh, in terms of, Alternative energy sources, things that have a smaller carbon footprint, really? that can help us address climate change and so forth, and all those things are competing with nuclear warheads for that Department of Energy budget. Uh, so it's it's a it's a very dysfunctional and, and misleading kind of um, you know institutional arrangement.
0: Boy, you would think. Department of Energy there's so much that could be done creating a lot of jobs and uh, dealing with climate change but no they they got to make nuclear weapons unbelievable another department uh since 911 of course is homeland security love that title tell us about this budget how large is that department and how much of it is domestic intelligence work and is is that part of the uh defense budget the Department of Homeland Security. Well, it's a separate
1: department that was set up after nine one one, and it includes uh, a whole series of other departments that were, you know, combined to create this mega agency. And so, you know, it's it's everything from, you know, federal and management agency to immigration and customs enforcement, properly known as ICE. Uh, it includes you know, the Coast Guard. So there's, there's this whole range of agencies, a lot of which do uh, domestic security functions that used to be done uh, by the Pentagon, um, all in, in this one basket. And it runs about $70 billion a year, so it's one of the largest agencies other than the Pentagon and, and Veterans Affairs. Uh, and it's not often considered when people think about, uh, you know, spending on national security, but it's, it's this growing budget. And, you know, some of it I think is relevant. I mean, it, you know, if they're trying to keep, you know, nuclear devices from getting into our ports, I'm in favor of that. Uh, But if they're using it to separate families at the border, I'm not in favor of that. So um, it's, it's a mixed bag, but it is, it should be considered when we're thinking about how much the nation spends on security. And it often is not, and it doesn't get the same, kind of scrutiny even that the pentagon would get um and they're big contractors i mean they give out contracts for example to give military grade equipment to local police and right the same companies that are feeding at the trough of the pentagon are getting homeland security contracts
0: i would think that you know genuine conservatives uh, might uh care about uh You know, the tremendous new toys that uh, Department of Homeland Security is giving to local police. Some of them maybe, uh, I would think, make them a little bit nervous, but they seem to be kind of quiet. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is William Hartung who is uh, director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy. We're talking about an article he's written on Tom Dispatch called Boondoggle, Inc., making sense of the $1.25 trillion national security state budget. And you know, we want to take care. There's the war and there are the warriors. We've all seen the ads on TV begging for private donations to take care of our wounded warriors. And as you say, this is a cost of war that is rarely considered. Since 9-11, there have been a lot of military personnel who have, as you say, cycled through the conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere, some places not even publicly acknowledged. How, is there not enough money to take care of these veterans and military retirees? I just find it appalling that they have to go begging on TV.
1: Well, I think it's it's an interesting problem. I mean, you know, 2.7 million um, men and women have cycled through our armed forces in these wars of this century. Um, you know, almost 7,000 of them were killed in war zones. Another 30 to 40,000 had, you know, were wounded in action. You know, physical wounds. Some of them quite horrific. And then several hundred thousand have either post-traumatic stress syndrome or traumatic brain injuries. So it's it's been this huge surge of veterans needing assistance. And the government hasn't kept up. I mean, the, the Veterans Affairs budget is running about $216 billion a year now. And, and that's about triple was it, what it was when we first went into Afghanistan in 2001. So a lot of money is being thrown at it. But the problem it's this huge growing problem. Part of it is the VA bureaucracy, uh, which hasn't been delivering mm-hmm. services as effectively and efficiently as they should. Mm. Um, but there should be enough money spent by the government that you you shouldn't have to go begging to help uh you know our veterans but unfortunately uh, a lot of the services are not being provided in the at the levels necessary especially there's not a lot of psychological assistance or other ways to help people deal with ptsd for example relative to the numbers of people who who suffer from it um so you know what should happen is and uh, my colleagues at the Cost of War Project at Brown University have pointed this out. Um, When they think about going into a conflict, they should think about not just the immediate cost, but what the costs are going to be uh, for years thereafter to take care of the vets, and and that should be almost factored in to the considerations of, you know, can we afford to do this? I mean, obviously the first question is, is it needed for our security? But a related question is, how much of our blood and treasure are going to go into this right. uh, conflict? Is it worth, you know, going into Iraq or Afghanistan, or now this kind of, you know, beating of the drums by John Bolton and others uh, about a possible military interaction with Iran? Um, these are lifetime decisions. Yeah. You know, I mean, the you know the like costs it. go on for decades, and that's not often discussed.
0: And it should be. These are, you know, real people, family members, part, you know, people in our communities. And uh, I just, it, it just bugs the heck out of me that they have to go begging on TV for this stuff, as you say. Well, in the overall reality of spending on defense and security matters, you include the international affairs budget as one of the uh, hidden uh, uh, parts of it. As you know, diplomacy, of course, is one of the most effective ways to make the U.S. and the world more secure. What happens to this aspect in the 2020 budget, diplomacy, the international affairs budget?
1: Well, they want to cut it uh, by more than a quarter, uh, which would be a huge loss to our ability to do things to prevent and um, bring an end to wars. Uh, And it's not only is it money, but uh, a lot of foreign service officers, experienced diplomats have been leaving because of the way they've been treated under this administration. A lot of our countries that we interact with, there's no ambassador been appointed. That was true until somewhat recently, even in Korea, uh, where we had very serious uh, diplomatic and military issues about North Korea's nuclear program. Um, And then at least 10% of that money for national affairs goes to military aid under a program of foreign military financing, which you would think would be under the Pentagon's umbrella. Um, and a lot of it goes to Egypt and Israel, but there's a whole other list of countries: Jordan, Lebanon, Djibouti, Tunisia, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, Philippines, Vietnam. So, um, and and then there's some other programs in the State Department that are buried even deeper that also relate to arms and training for things like uh, anti narcotics activities and so forth. So, um, you know, even even the diplomacy budget is kind of uh, cut back uh circumscribed by the fact that they've put military activities under that budget category
0: you know why Why do diplomacy when wars are so much more fun that's kind of sick i think uh just my point of view there's another uh factor here the intelligence budget as i was reading that i was thinking that listeners will be surprised at the number of separate agencies here isn't Isn't it uh, a lot of the money for such things hidden and therefore not even counted in the budget, the intelligence budget? Well,
1: exactly. People think of maybe the CIA, National Security Agency. Sure. But there's a thing like the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. There's agencies separate for all the military forces, plus a defense intelligence agency, plus a big umbrella, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, and a number of others. And basically what they do is they, they hide this within the budget. They, they do report uh, what they claim is the top line. You know, they say we spend about $80 billion a year on intelligence. But there's no line item. There's no description of what's going on. And experts who follow this stuff believe that they just hide the money in the Pentagon budget and, and other parts of the budget. And, and sometimes they can kind of figure this out by looking at, like, the code names of certain R&D programs and stuff. But, um, you know, essentially, it's almost completely opaque, uh, that whole kind of funding of intelligence and the activities of those agencies, which, of course, that, you know, occasionally pops out, like the National Security Agency spying on U.S. citizens, uh, things of that nature, the CIA, not just gathering intelligence, but overthrowing governments, doing drone strikes, uh, you know, engaging in paramilitary activities
0: all of which I would think tend to exacerbate situations and end up, you know, recruiting for the bad guys. They get angry and upset that uh, drones are coming in and striking them and killing a lot of innocent people. I, I just, I'm not sure it's the best idea for actually defending us. And then there's the defense share of interest on the national debt. How much do taxpayers fork over to service the government's debt to its lenders? That's another big number. It is huge. Uh,
1: you know, the, the total interest on the debt runs about $500 billion a year. Of that, a little under a third, $156 billion is attributable to uh, Pentagon spending. And, and, you know, it's basically you look at, all right, in a given year, here's what we spent. Here's how it was laid out. Here's the deficit. And we just divided it proportionally. So, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's an estimating procedure, but if we were spending less on defense, we wouldn't be spending such huge sums to service the debt, which actually, um, eventually, within the next decade, if we don't change course, the uh, interest on the debt is going to be higher than the Pentagon budget. So there will just be a further squeeze on everything else we want to do uh, for our
0: country. And that's a difficult one to attack because, you know, the pff, it is uh, interest on the debt and these lenders lent money and... You know, got to be paid back. So it does seem, correct me if I'm wrong here, the Pentagon base budget is less than half the total real military and defense budget. Is that, is that an accurate assessment there?
1: Yes, that's correct. Um, and so it's just another thing to consider when military leaders say we don't have enough money. Right. Is that the, there's a lot more money in that system than they claim. Now, some of it is money that we're not going to roll back. As you said, we we have to pay the interest on the debt. We need to take care of our veterans.
0: Yes. Uh, But
1: if we rolled back the amounts we're spending on the Pentagon and didn't engage in unnecessary wars, those kinds of costs would be less in the future, at
0: least. And I would think that the the people in the field, you know, should have— I mean, they have to use these weapons, and there was something that they were using in uh, Afghanistan, or perhaps it was Iraq, when they the the people on the ground were telling the defense secretary, "Hey, this leaves us really vulnerable," and they were, you know, creating their own protective systems in there. I I seriously doubt that there's that line of communication from the top, uh, you know, to the top from the bottom. It's probably all just top down, and uh, you know, a lot of lives are at stake here. And you ask, and this is, I think, the perfect question. Imagine if any of that money were devoted to figuring out how to prevent such conflicts rather than hatching yet more schemes, how to fight them. So are there members of Congress or presidential candidates who address this bloated spending? And what can the average listener do about this stuff?
1: Well, I think there's between the progressive and libertarian members of Congress, and some of the candidates, there is an understanding that we can't have a policy of perpetual war. Now, I think we need to hear more. We need that more loudly and persistently put out there by candidates. I think, you know, for the public, we have the usual levers. I mean, we got we got to push in the media to the extent that we can. We have to, you know, educate our fellow citizens and whatever organizations we're part of. Pressure on Congress can actually help. If it's targeted and persistent, and if it's by constituents pressing their own member versus sort of generalized critiques. And we've seen that on some other issues. For example, uh, the United States has been harming Saudi Arabia for this awful war they're waging in Yemen, where thousands of people have been killed, civilians killed by airstrikes. Millions of people are at risk of famine because they've been bombing things like uh, water treatment plants and factories and they've been blockading what supplies can come into the country and then there's been war profiteering by the various factions, making goods more expensive and so forth. So both houses of Congress have passed resolutions under the War Powers Act, including the Republican-controlled Senate, to say the US has to stop supporting that war. Now Trump overrode that veto, so the the fight's gonna continue. But the fact that we could get enough Republicans in the Senate to say enough is enough on this war when they have rarely right. opposed President Trump. That's a big is one. kind of a uh, testament to the kind of work that went into it from uh, grassroots groups and, and advocacy groups in Washington yeah. and kind of a coalition of human rights, humanitarian aid, arms control, and peace groups working together in ways that don't often happen. So I think, you know, when, when, there's, a, when there's a clear focus and persistent pressure we can move the Congress to do things, and and occasionally, at you know, big historical moments, we can turn around that huge military machine. And, and the question is, are we heading into one of those moments or not? Um, you know, given the state of the country, the state of our infrastructure, uh, you know, even President Trump got elected on this notion that we fought these disastrous wars, weren't right. we spending the money at home. Yes. He just made a little tweet the other day about how the military industrial complex is kind of drive us to war. It's not clear he believes these things because he never follows through on them, but it's clear that some of his base cares about that stuff, you know? And so there may be a way to reach out more broadly on this uh, than just, you know, sort of liberals and people who've traditionally been part of the peace movement proper, you know, so I view there as Possibilities, But I'm, you know, I'm aware that we're up against very powerful forces, but I think there's enough at stake, especially given that there's other things we need to be sure. uh, focusing on, like climate change, that, that maybe we can start to turn the debate at least.
0: Well, I always like to end on a note of optimism, and that's true. We, we did make some progress with that particular uh, Yemen and Saudi situation. We can do it some more. So if people are interested in following uh, more of your work... Uh,
1: We're at internationalpolicy.org If people just Google me, William Hartung, my webpage will show up. Some of the places that I write for, like Tom Dispatch and uh-huh. The Nation, will be listed. my articles there. So uh, sometimes it's just easiest to Google William Hartung.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for being with Thank us. Thank you. <laughs>